Well, um, I want to start by tonight by just telling you that Janie and I, we love coffee. I don't know if we're alone on that, but we love coffee and we always have. Our first date was to coffee. When we got married in 2005, we had to figure out who was going to make the coffee every morning. Well, we decided in a very practical way that we would take turns making the coffee. So one morning I would make it, the next morning she would make it. That's a fair thing to do, right? Well, one morning I woke up early and I sort of turned over and smiled at my sleeping bride as she lay there sleeping in peace. And the sun was peeking through the blinds on this crisp morning and And I heard the birds chirping. It was glorious. It was wonderful. And I was just struck with how wonderful marriage is. And I turned and looked up to the ceiling and just praised God for my wife and for our marriage. And I had this urge to do something for her, something that she would love, something that she would like. I wanted to give her something. I know. I'll bring coffee to her in bed. She will love that. We love coffee. Did I mention that? Well, there's just one problem. It was her morning to make the coffee. Now I was in a dilemma. What was I going to do? The decision had been made already. We were going to take turns making coffee, remember? The law, it had been ratified. It's somehow part of our marriage covenant now. I think it was in our vows to have and to hold for better or for worse, richer or poorer. And I vowed to make coffee for her no more and no less than every other day until death do us part. Hmm. That morning, I woke up with a profound sense of gratitude and adoration for my wife. But the law forbade me to do this one act of service. So you want to know what I did? I made her coffee. Well, through the years, this silly story has helped me understand why Paul gets so worked up about the law in the book of Romans and elsewhere. In today's passage, he's talking about how Abraham was justified by faith, apart from the law. It was like Abraham had made coffee for God simply because he trusted him. He had faith. He knew God would accomplish what he said he would accomplish. So there was no need for a law. So today I want to propose something to you that I think will help us in understanding this passage in, our book, in the book of Romans. And that's this. That the law exists to ensure justice occurs should love ever fail. It's a mouthful. The law exists to ensure justice occurs should love ever fail. That's not God's love, of course, because it never fails, but it's our own love that often fails. Well, last week we saw that there are two ways of seeing God's righteousness through the law and through faith in Jesus Christ. First, the law shows us God's righteousness because in it we understand who God is, right? 
He is holy. He is the one true God. He is worthy to be worshipped. Paul said the second way to see the righteousness of God is apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. And so today, St. Paul continues contrasting these two ways uh, by the biblical figure of Abraham. Now, our lectionary actually skips the first 12 verses of chapter 4, so a brief summary of that might be helpful. Because the chances are you uh, probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about Abraham. But he was a pretty big deal to the Jews. And since Paul is writing the book of Romans to a mixed audience made up of Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles, Abraham had to be brought up. He was the father of the Jewish people, and it was the Jewish people who had received the law. So in chapter 4, Paul points out that Abraham never received the law. The law came some 430 years later after Abraham. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 3. So when we're told in Genesis, way back in the Old Testament, in chapter 15 of Genesis, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, we realize that faith not the law, is how he was counted righteous. So the significance of this fact, uh, the significance of this fact, Paul says, is that Abraham is not just the father of the Jewish people, but more significantly, he's the father of everyone who walks in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. And this brings us to our text today. If you look in verse 13, Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham was a pagan. And we read in Genesis 12 that God called him to leave his pagan roots and to go to a land that he would show him. His obedience would result in being a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And this is the promise that Paul refers to here in verse 13. And this is what he means by Abraham being the heir of the world. He reiterates the point he made earlier in chapter 4, that this promise preceded the law and that it was Abraham's faith by which he was counted righteous. Last week, we briefly noted that the language, this language of counted as righteous refers to Paul's term justification. And last week, we, uh, I had said that the Protestant understanding of justification is that God imputes righteousness to us. That is, he counts, as, he counts us as righteous, even if we are not righteous. And we say this, because St. Paul says it here in Romans. So this is an accounting term, and it means that our account has been credited. And St. Paul says this because Genesis says this in Genesis chapter 15. So today, many have a problem with this idea because how would God, God would never say that something was the case, that something was true when it wasn't, Right? If we're not righteous, uh, 
Why would he count us as righteous? You may have heard some people call this a legal fiction. Is that the case? Well, I think the answer comes in the following verses. Look in 14 and 15. Paul says, For it is the adherents of the law, who, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. We talked about that last week. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Paul tells us in verse 15 that there is no transgression where there is no law. Now, did you know that in the state of Arizona, that it is illegal to have a donkey sleeping in your bathtub after 7 o'clock p.m.? You didn't know that, did you? Did you know in Oklahoma and Ohio that it is against the law to make faces at dogs? In California, it is illegal to eat an orange while taking a bath. It's a good thing we live in Tennessee, isn't it? Here, our donkeys can sleep wherever they want, whenever they want. You see, we cannot transgress a law that does not exist. And this is Paul's point. If Abraham could be, was counted as righteous, it had nothing to do with the law because he had nothing to transgress, which is a good thing because Abraham had many donkeys. Now, this doesn't mean that Abraham was sinless. As a pagan, he was just as guilty of worshiping the creature rather than the creator, which was the whole point of chapter 1 in Romans. Later in chapter 5, Paul will make the point that death still occurred, even if no law existed to prohibit transgressions. But at this point in his argument, all Paul is saying is that there is a righteousness that exists apart from the law, and that this righteousness is available by faith, which Abraham had. So it is not a legal fiction because there was no law. And you need a law for anything legal to happen, right? And so this is why he says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. God made his promise to Abraham by grace. It was not conditional. He never said, so long, Abraham, as you obey the law that I'll give in 430 years from now, that you'll be the father of a great nation. That's not what he said. God just made the promise and Abraham trusted it. But this is not limited to the physical descendants of Abraham. That is the Jews. But as he continues to say in verse 16, it is guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And now Paul is getting somewhere. You see, the tensions that exist between the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Roman church centered around whether the Gentile Christians were second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven and whether they needed to adhere to Jewish customs. 
While Paul does say that the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles, that advantage was just restricted to the fact that God had given them his oracles. You see that in chapter 3, verse 2. But that in no way makes them superior because both groups receive the free gift of righteousness by faith. So what was true for Abraham is true for all who believe in Jesus. So what's the point of the law, you might ask? Well, Paul gets to this letter that later, but he answers the question very clearly in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, where he says that the law was our guardian or our, our schoolmaster, or our tutor. That is, by the law, we learn of our transgressions and how hopeless our situation actually is. It prepares all of mankind for the coming of the Savior. But also remember that the law ensures justice occurs should love ever fail. The law ensures justice occurs should love ever fail. The promise made to Abraham was that he would be the father of all nations. And we have learned that what was meant by that is that all the nations of the world will descend from him through faith. That is, by trusting God in all he says. In other words, by loving God for who he is and what he has promised. But the love of human beings is fickle and often fails, doesn't it? And when love fails, others suffer. That's why you need the law. That's why taking turns making coffee in our marriage had to occur. Because I don't wake up like that every single morning wanting to do something nice for Janie. So when my love and my service fails, at least coffee gets made under the law, right? Again, I know that this is silly, but it illustrates the point. Friends, when we fail to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and all of our strength, our neighbors do not receive their due. When I am selfish, someone else is affected. The law exists because the hardness of our hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so, Jesus said. In an ideal world, we take the Lord at his word and we obey him even when we don't understand it or like it. That is why Abraham is such a hero. He was even prepared to offer his only son as a sacrifice to the Lord. Righteousness is indeed revealed in the law, but so is our sinfulness. Righteousness revealed apart from the law by grace through faith is the good news we desperately need. We began this series last week in Romans, and I mentioned that I subtitled the series What We Mean When We Talk About the Gospel. Because this is such a long and in-depth book of the Bible, the book of Romans is, we're sort of following Paul through a complex argument. So at this point, the gospel that we talk about must include a clear understanding of the righteousness that is credited or imputed to our account apart from the law. 
So that's important. How this translates to you and I today is actually very simple. And here it is. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn God's love. Abraham didn't earn God's love. Paul didn't earn God's love, and neither can you. And neither can your neighbor. As Paul said in chapter 3, it is a free gift of grace. So all this talk about Jewish history and Abraham and the Roman church and St. Paul boils down to this one fact, that you cannot earn God's love. And I know that you've heard it many times, but tonight I want to challenge you. Do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? Do you stake your life upon it? Or... Are you continually crippled by the guilt of all of your failures and sin? Are you haunted by a belief that somehow God is disappointed in you? Are you afraid that God doesn't even like you? If God knows all of your secrets, how could he possibly impute one drop of righteousness to your account? How much time do you think, how much time do you spend listening to that voice of condemnation that says, you call yourself a Christian? You're not even a decent person, much less a saint. Well, if any of this is familiar to you, I must point out that you are still seeking to be justified by the law. You still believe that somehow God's promises are contingent upon your own perfection and righteousness. But that wasn't the case for Abraham. He was counted righteousness, righteous because he simply believed God. Now, before I close, I, just, I have to be very careful here and make mention of this. Remember that we are in the beginning of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So we cannot leave this building with a false assumption that the commandments of God are now meaningless. That's actually an ancient heresy called antinomianism, which means against the law. And Paul is constantly reminding us that our freedom from the law in no way justifies sin. And we need to make that very clear. This is a very important distinction because if we aren't careful, the gospel, what we talk about, may sound like antinomianism to someone. Hey, the good news, we might say, is that you're justified apart from the law. You don't have to earn God's love, which is true. This is what I've been saying. But it's very easy to conclude from that. That God loves me just as I am, which is also true, but that there's no need to change my ways. And that is a complete distortion of the gospel. If you remember the words of Paul, we didn't read this together, but the words of Paul back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he asks, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Change. 
The gospel changes us. We move away from sin, not out of fear, but out of our love for the one who saved us. So I uh, admonish you here at the end, beloved, to look around you this week. Look at those in your lives, your workplaces, your family members or roommates, your neighbors. Many of them are desperately trying to earn the love of others by keeping some sort of law. It may not be the Old Testament law, but some kind of law. If I just say the right words, people will love me. If I just adopt the right social concerns or sleep with my boyfriend or buy my wife whatever she wants or never tell my kids the word no or take on a certain identity, then I will be loved and then I will be accepted. And if they're thinking this about other human beings, I guarantee you they're thinking this about God as well. But we have good news, don't we? When we accept the free gift of grace, that is redemption that is in Jesus Christ, it reorients our entire understanding of love. And we find that we exceed any law by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. And not only this, but we're also free to love our neighbors without earning their love in return. As we grow into his unfailing love, our love fails less and less. God's desire is not for our sacrifices. We read that throughout all of our other readings this evening. He doesn't desire our sacrifices, but he desires our love. So tonight, accept even once again the free gift of grace, accept the love of God and share that that same love with someone who still believes that it must be earned. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace and the love that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us when we try to earn your love when you have freely given it to us. We pray, Lord, that you would work out all of, the, all of the false narratives in our hearts and our minds that tell us that we must earn your love. And may that inform the way that we relate to others, our neighbors, our spouses, our parents, our friends, even our enemies. The love is not something that is earned, but is freely given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.